0: So uh, my name is Mike. I serve as one of the pastors here at City Light, and today it's perhaps unsurprising to you, as a pastor of a Christian church, that I'm going to be talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, for many of you, I'm sure that's not the first time you've heard his name, and if I'm right about that, then you've probably had to spend at least a little bit of time thinking about who Jesus is, especially if you consider some of the things that Christians claim about him. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of there's scholarly consensus, you could say, among scholars of all different beliefs that there was a historic Jesus of Nazareth. But Christians actually worship the guy. Not only that, but Christians claim that if you don't worship the guy, that you're missing something vital in your life that can't be replaced by anything else. So you've got to deal with the question of who this Jesus is that such bold claims are made about. Uh, Jesus himself affirms the importance of the question when he asks his disciples, who do you say... That I am. So, today, for you, here with me, who do you say that Jesus is? We've been going through the Apostles' Creed, a series of sermons in 2019 thus far on the Apostles' Creed, which is kind of a summary of Christian belief. And the answer it gives is that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, our Lord. So, we say in the Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And that's a good summary of the Bible's answer. Uh, we'll, We'll see from the passage that was just read that Jesus is God's only Son, that he is Lord of all, and that he is our Lord. So first, he is God's only Son. I uh, just want to remind you at the outset, the Apostles' Creed is a synthesis of multiple passages of the Bible. So no one passage says everything that the Creed says. Uh, in fact, this passage before us today doesn't use the word Son uh, to describe Jesus. And I realized this week, it doesn't actually use the words Jesus Christ Christ. Uh, son or lord in the at all so i don't know why i picked it but uh here we are and uh in any case the the concept is at least there okay because there's a closely related concept of sonship that appears in verse 15 the first verse of the passage we read it says there that jesus is the image of the invisible god and the idea of an image of god appears in the first chapter of the bible With the creation of the first humans, we read that God created the first humans in his image. And then we read later in the Bible that the first human created, Adam, is described as a son of God. So there's this connection between being made in the image of God and being a son of God. In Genesis chapter 5, Adam gives birth to a son. And it says that he fathered a son after his likeness in his own image. So sons bear the image of their father. For Christ to be described as the image of God is to say that he is God's only son. Uh, I had a son uh, who was born about six months ago. Uh, Half the people who meet him say he looks more like my wife, but I like to think he looks like me too. And so he's my son who's an image in some way of his father. But here's what you got to notice in Colossians in in verse 15. Every human is image of God, but Christ is the image of God verse 15 says. He is the image of God in an absolute sense. Adam was the first human made in God's image, but Christ, verse 15 says, is the firstborn of all creation. Now let me explain what that doesn't mean and what it does mean. What it doesn't mean is that God created a lot of stuff and the first thing God created was Jesus Christ. And we know that's not what it means because in verse 16 we read that it was actually through him, through Christ, that all things were created. So if all things, that means all things, right, were created through Christ, then he himself cannot be a part of the creation. He cannot be one of the things God created. He has to exist before the creation begins for all the creation to be done through him. There was never a time where he did not exist. There was not a time where God said, "Let me make Jesus." He he always has existed. There was a time when you and I did not exist. There was a time when Adam and Eve did not exist. There was a time when the earth and the universe itself did not exist. There was never a time when God the Son, Jesus Christ, did not exist. He is the eternal image of God. And yet, he is the image of God. Uh, God the Father is never called the image of God. Jesus is. And so, What gives? Well, the best Christian theologians have done to explain this is through the Nicene Creed, which is basically an expansion on the Apostles' Creed. We confess there that Jesus is begotten, not made. So he's not made. He's not a part of the creation. He's begotten. uh, Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. This is how the Nicene Creed goes. Uh, John of Damascus, a Christian theologian from the 8th century who lived in Damascus, (laughs) believe it or not, uh, modern-day Syria, And he explains that making or creating means, bear with me on this, a little confusing at first, but I think it will clear it up. Making or creating means the bringing into being from the outside and not from the substance of the creator of something created and made entirely dissimilar in substance. So if I was to create a sculpture, I'm not making more of myself, right? I'm making something outside of myself. That's the idea of creation. When God creates the first humans, when God creates earth, that's what he's doing. Begetting, on the other hand, or generating is another word theologians have used, means producing of the substance of the begetter an offspring similar in substance to the begetter. So when humans have a child, for example, that's more like what begetting is. Uh, I don't don't put his arms together and make him. He's produced as a result of my being. Um, But probably a, a better analogy, the closest one we have, is the relationship between our thoughts and our words. So like as I'm speaking to you right now, my thoughts are actualizing and being expressed through words, even though they can be distinguished from the thoughts that are behind them. Jesus is actually called the Word of God in the Bible. We read that this morning in our call to worship from John chapter 1. He was the Word that was with God in the beginning, and there was God himself. So uh, another theologian, Herman Bavinck, says, Just as the human mind objectivizes itself in speech, so God expresses his entire being in the Son. And yet, even here, the analogy breaks down. No one word I say really exhaustively expresses my thoughts. But Jesus perfectly expresses all that God is. He is—he is the expression of God's entire being. Uh, my words have a momentary existence; I say them and they go away. Jesus, though the Son, God has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and so He is the image of God. In that, all of who God is comes to expression in Him. Now, why in the world do any of these distinctions matter? They matter. They matter because if Jesus is just another part of God's creation, something that God made like he made everything else, we better not worship him. We talked last week about idolatry. Idolatry is when we take something that God made that's good in and of itself, but we treat it like it's God. We tap real meaning in life from it how the author David Foster Wallace put it. We, we look f- to it for our hope and happiness, our significance and security, and the results are disastrous. Again, Wallace's term was that it eats you alive, the idol. Uh, if you, you know, do that with your career, you'll never feel successful enough. If you do it with your spouse or a relationship that you want, the person will never give you as much as you feel like you need from them, so you'll always be drawing on them, you'll always be insecure, you'll always be wanting more, from them never be satisfied or you'll be so afraid of upsetting them that you'll get walked all over if you do it to your kids you'll smother them you'll crush them under the weight of your expectations or you'll be so afraid of them not liking you that you won't discipline them a lot more examples but the point is you can't take things God made and expect them to be to you what only God is they're finite they're not infinite they can't do what only he can do so if all Jesus is is just another part of God's creation maybe a special part but still another part of God's creation, which, by the way, is what most people today think about him. He's, uh, you know, perhaps special in some way, but he's he's a human. He's part of this thing, creation or earth or whatever it may be. If that's all he is, we better not worship him. We better stop singing songs to him like we did this morning. We're singing worship songs to Jesus Christ, praising him, giving him the praise and honor due to God alone. We better stop doing it if he's just part of God's creation. You better not tap real meaning in life from him. You better not look to him for your hope and happiness, your significance and security. But if he's begotten, not made, if he's the eternal image of the invisible God, the image of God, and the begetter begets something of the same substance as the begetter, he's God entirely, truly God, and you better worship away. Go for it. Last week we saw that God the Father is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's ase, independent of anyone else for his being, and he's eternal without beginning or end. But here what we're seeing is that those ideas that are true of God are expressed fully in the Son, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, who is independent, ase, who is eternal without beginning or end. And yet there's only one God. All of who God is comes to expression in Jesus Christ. He is all those things, just as God the Father is, and there's only one God. Now, that's the mystery of the Trinity, one God eternally existing in three persons. We're not even going to scratch the surface of it this week, but here's where we can scratch. Do you worship Christ, or do you merely appreciate him? The popular attitude towards Jesus today is one of appreciation. Uh, It's really based on a kind of selective reading of what Jesus said and did. So people s- commonly say, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I appreciate Jesus. I appreciate how he, you know, taught people to turn the other cheek and he had some good things to say about caring for the poor and about seeking peace and making peace and, um, you know, the stuff he said about sex and about uh, love of money and about hell. Like, I'm not gonna think about that. But the other stuff I appreciate, you know, I, I appreciate him. Um, but to appreciate someone is very different from worshiping them. Um... And so what, what we usually do is we appreciate Jesus, but we, we live for, and the thing that gets us out of bed is, you know, career, family, kids, whatever else it may be. But if all who've got, who God is comes to its expression in Jesus Christ, then it should really be just the opposite. We should appreciate the things he's made, but we should worship him alone. You find that if you take the things he's made and you you go too far with them, right? You, you kind of have to chill on that. Like, um, if, you, if you're in a tough season of life and you tell yourself, but, you know, once I get out of this house or, or once I get my kids out of diapers or, you know, whatever, you probably got to chill on that a bit. Like, just realize that's not going to solve every problem in your life. You spend all your time at work, you probably got to chill on that a bit. Like, just realize it's not going to be healthy for you. You never have to do that with Jesus Christ. He is infinite, <laughs> He's the infinite image of the invisible God. You could not worship Him too much. You could not think too highly of him, I dare you. You could not love him too much. You could not trust him too much. You could not rely on him too much, listen to him too much, depend on him too much. Put all your eggs in this basket. Dump the whole truck. And you will never find that he fails to make good on who he is. He is the eternal image of the invisible God. He is before all things. And because of that, because he's before all things, because all things were created through him, he is also Lord of all things, and that's what we'll talk about next. I'm having trouble with this microphone today. It'll get in its proper place. You can hear me, so we're good. Okay, remember in verse 15 that Jesus being the firstborn doesn't mean he's the first thing God made. So what does it mean? Well, the firstborn in the ancient world was also a designation of honor. The idea was you have a bunch of kids. The one who comes first is worthy of this kind of special place, this special inheritance, because they came before all the others. So what this passage is showing us is that Jesus existed before anything else because he's eternal. And therefore, he's worthy of a unique honor as the firstborn of all creation. And even better than, than any other firstborn. Like, I'm the firstborn in my family. I've got a younger brother. But my younger brother was not created through me. I had nothing to do with it. I, I don't know. I was probably 15 months old whenever he was conceived. I had no involvement. No idea what was going on. He wasn't created through me. He wasn't created for me. My parents didn't just have him because I was lonely. And I don't maintain his ongoing existence. He's got his own life. He's got his own job. He takes care of himself. But what this passage tells us about Christ is that all things were created through him. Verse 16 goes on to say that all things were created for him. And verse 17 goes on to say that in him all things hold together. So everything was created through him, everything was created for him, and everything is dependent on him for its ongoing existence. He holds it together. And there's no exceptions, right? Verse 16 rattles off a list, right? Things visible and invisible, heaven or earth, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, whatever it is, created through him, created for him, held together in him. Which means if Jesus stops holding your molecules together, you die. If he stops holding photons and electromagnetic radiation together, Light goes away, ceases to exist. And therefore, he has power and authority over everything. That's what it means to be a lord, by the way, to have power and to have authority over everything. It's all in his hands. And that means he's lord over earthly lords. Verse 16 says, right, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. From President Trump to your boss at work, Jesus is lord over them. But for the Colossians, um, when they thought of the thrones, the dominions, the rulers and authorities, that most struck fear into them. They didn't think of the visible ones. They thought of the invisible ones. That's why that's on the list here, invisible things. What's, What's he talking about? The Colossians had been infected with a false teaching that though they had Christ, though they had trusted him, there were these evil spirits that were kind of competing powers with Christ that they had to placate through rituals. It's a, it's a false teaching that's common in the world, by, by the way, uh, common throughout human history. And I would venture to say that even in a progressive city like Philadelphia, it's actually fairly common here too. I traveled to Indonesia a few years ago, and I met people there who engaged in a very specific burial ritual for their dead because they thought they needed to do that to ward off evil spirits. They, wanted, they had a ritual to have a positive interaction with the spirit realm. I meet people in Philadelphia who tell me they're spiritual but not religious. So they're engaged with the spirit realm and they have various rituals that they use to have a positive interaction with that spirit realm, whether it be meditation or yoga or acupuncture mindfulness, whatever it may be. And I'm not saying all those things are wicked to the core or anything, but I'm just pointing out that we might not be as different from the Colossians as we would first assume. In fact, um, the fear that there's this invisible, uncontrollable unknowable forces out there that could do bad things to me that could harm me even if you're not spiritual right even if you're like that's all crap you know that's, that's nonsense it's hard to get away from that fear it's primal it's, you know, that's a good word for it uh, if you don't believe me try having a kid i have never been afraid of so many unseeable unknowable invisible things than the last six months that, that my son has been alive uh, I'm not a crier. I, I don't know why. I'm sure a counselor would have a field day with that, but I'm not a crier. The day we left the hospital, I cried. <laughs> I was so scared. The nurses are like letting us go, <laughs> like give me this kid and like we're gonna take care of him now. So praise God I have a great wife, but um, it, it's scary uh, because you see all the decisions that you make that impact your kid's life that could go wrong. Should we wake him up from his nap? Should we let him sleep? Well, if we wake him up, you know, he might not like that. Maybe he wants to sleep longer. But if we let him sleep, he might not sleep tonight, and that wouldn't be good either. And so, well, maybe we should let him cry a little bit. But if you let him cry, maybe he'll get insecure, you know, and then he'll think, but nobody cares about me. But maybe we should pick him up and, and rock him then, and, and then he'll go back to sleep. But then maybe he'll get too dependent on us. That's like five minutes of my day. Imagine doing that all day, right? Like, that's, that, that's something of what it's like to be a parent. Um, so it, it gets into you, right? And... I'm not saying I believe metaphysically there's some evil spirit that's going to get my son if I wake him up from his nap or something, but, but I kind of live like it, right? Like, and, and here's a piece of free advice, okay? This, this is not from the Bible or part of a sermon. When you're in that situation, if you're ever a parent, don't Google it, okay? <laughs> don't Google it because it's a mess out there. You're going you're gonna to find a forum of people on the internet who are ready to affirm your deepest fear that if you make one false move, you're screwing that kid up for life. You're, you're loading him up with a psychological disorder that he's going to need years of therapy for because you made the wrong decision one day about fill in the blank, whatever it is. So it's scary. It, if, you think, if you function like you live in a world ruled by uncontrollable, unseen, unknowable forces, and your only hope is that you've got to get it right, You've got to get all the information and make the right decisions and parent right. You've got to do the right burial ritual. You've got to do the right meditation ritual, whatever. It's going to kill you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stress, you're going to be stressed out trying to hold all things together and you're going to be angry at anyone who gets in the way. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, you don't have to hold all things together. He holds all things together. All things hold together in him. There is not a force, there is not a spirit, there is not a molecule in your kid that Jesus does not hold together. There is not a force, there is not a spirit, there is not a molecule over which Jesus does not say, mine. He is Lord over all. Things you can see, things you can't see. Things you know about, things you couldn't possibly know about. Things there's been studies on, things there haven't been studies on. And as Lord, he has authority over all things. All things were created through him, and all things were created for him. Meaning all things were created to serve this master, to ultimately exist under his loving rule. I mentioned earlier that uh, we often appreciate Christ, but really love other things, when it should be just the opposite. This is why the opposite works. Because the things Jesus has made, the things that have been made through him, really are good really are worthy of appreciation they were created for him so you really should appreciate your job your family friends city food politics art science whatever anything that was created was created through christ and created for christ and it's good you can enjoy it you can appreciate it you should and the best way for you to do that the best way to appreciate it is when you enjoy it the way it was created to be enjoyed not as a substitute for christ but in service to Christ. Rather than using Jesus to get the things in creation that you really love, use the things in creation to serve the Christ who you really love. And then you'll be able to really enjoy them. We've already talked about how idols kind of eat you alive, so I'll just use one example. Uh, Let's say your job. If, If what gets you out of bed in the morning and to work in the day or if what gets you out of bed at night, I know we got some night shift people here, uh, and to work when it's dark out, which kudos to you. Uh, if, w- if what gets you to do that is, I have to prove myself. I have to, I have to show that I, that I can hang with so-and-so, i better than so and Or, you know, Rocky, what does Rocky say? Because then I'll know I'm not a bum. If that's what gets you going, because then if I do my job and I'm good at it, I know, I'll know I'm not a bum. You're not really going to appreciate your job. You'll have occasional joys, right? Occ- occasional happiness when you succeed but your overall experience of it will grind you. It'll kill you. It'll be a burden. But if your job wasn't ultimately created for you, if it was ultimately created for him, through Christ and for Christ, then it can go from being your identity to being your calling, an opportunity for you to serve Christ and to serve others. If if your relationships or your marriage wasn't created ultimately for you, but for Him, then your significant other can go from being the person who gives you an identity to a person made in the image of God who you now have greater opportunity to love and serve in the name of Jesus. If your kids aren't there for you to provide you with fulfillment, if they're there for Him instead, then they can go from being this thing you have to control and smother to get what you need out of them to being a gift that God has given you the very way the Bible describes them everything flourishes when it takes its proper place under jesus's loving rule that's what it was created for and you'll be able to appreciate it more to the degree you can do that but there's there's one part of his creation in particular that resists that loving rule and that's you and that's me i instinctively want things to take their proper place in service of me And so we we instinctively say in our hearts, all things were created for me. And so when other people don't rearrange their lives in service of me, when the details of my world don't seem to work out in service of me, we get mad, we get bitter, we withdraw, we criticize, we detach. It's the one idol you can't really run away from because the idol is you. My life for someone else I'm here for him? No, come on. I got my own plans. I got my own dreams. Someone else holds everything together and I just trust him? No, come on. If I want to make sure my life works, I've got to do it. I've got to hold it together. Now, if you were to treat a Lord like that, how would you expect that to go? Take any authority figure in your life. We've been talking about work. Take your boss at work. You go into work and you say, you know, I'm not going to work for you anymore. I want this, this, this workplace is about me. I'm at the top of the chain here. So everyone in this office, they need to start doing what I want them to do, and the bottom line is my happiness. And you know what? I'll keep you around, you can stay, but only to the degree that you work for me. Now what would you expect from that boss? You expect them to fire you, probably, right? Like if you, if you kept that up, if that was your approach at work, you'd expect there's, that's not gonna be a healthy relationship. That kind of selfishness breaks your relationship with your boss. Well, that kind of selfishness has broken our relationship with our Lord, the one who is the Lord of all things. And he'd have been totally justified to fire us, so to speak, to just leave the relationship broken. And that's not what he's done. We're about to see that instead of leaving the relationship broken, he reconciled. He did the work to reconcile the relationship so that he could not just be Lord of all, so that he could not just be Jesus Christ, God's only son, the Lord, but Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. Verse 18 says he's the head of the body, the church. All things were created through him, but the church, this thing, is described as the thing over which he's the head. See, a Lord can rule from afar, but a head is intimately connected to the body over which it rules. It's saying that Jesus, though he's Lord of all, has a special intimate relationship with his church, with a community of people. He's not just Lord, he's our Lord. Now how can that be? Who are these people that can enjoy this intimate connection to their Lord? Well, they must be the good people, right? They must be the people who haven't rejected his loving rule and who have done the right thing and who have done the things they're supposed to do. That's not who they are. That's wrong. We know, because verse 21 follows the passage we read. And it addresses the church in this way. Church in Colossae, people like you and me. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So also verse 20 says, he made peace by the blood of his cross. He made peace. That means there wasn't peace. And you didn't make it. He made it by the blood of his cross. Because anytime a relationship is really broken, someone has to pay in order to repair it. It's theft is probably the easiest example of this. If one of you steals $1,000 from me, I don't have $1,000 on me today, but, or any day. <laughs> yeah, just today. Um, yeah, don't, don't get any ideas. But if you did, okay, if I wanted to be reconciled, if I wanted to have peace in that relationship, one of us is going to be out $1,000. You're going to have to pay me back, then, we, then I can be happy with you, or I'm just going to have to accept the fact that I'm out $1,000. But something's been broken. Someone has to pay. There's a debt has to be paid down. The problem is, in our relationship with God, the way we've sinned against Him, it's a debt we can't afford, actually. We can't pay it back without being eternally condemned. Because the amount of the debt depends on who the offense is against, the worth. So if I spit in the toilet, nobody cares. That's kind of why toilets are there for other things too, but for that. If you spit in someone's face, whole new story. Why? You did the same thing. But the object that you directed it at is of greater value, of greater dignity than a toilet. You should treat people better than that. Well, God, what we're seeing here is that he is a Lord of infinite value. So that when we spit in his face, which is what we've done, by claiming to be Lord, by telling him he has to work for us, we rack up an infinite debt. Now, who can pay down an infinite debt? Only an infinite being. And there's only one of those. So God the Father so loves the very people who spit in his face that he sends God the Son. And in verse 19, we read that this Son, the head of the church, the Lord that we've been talking about, Jesus Christ, in him, the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the infinite being. That we need who was so willing to come he's the lord the infinite image of god who came to earth for the very people who had racked up the debt against him he comes takes on human flesh the one through whom all things were created enters into his creation and is the image of god the perfect image of god that we that adam and every human sense failed to be And with his infinite life, the infinite value of his person, he goes to the cross and he bears the infinite wrath of God that you and I deserved so that you and I could receive the infinite love of God that he deserved. And because the fullness of God dwelt in him, because he was an infinite being, the infinite image of God, even the wrath of God did not ultimately destroy him. He rose from the dead, and verse 19 says, He is now the firstborn from the dead. Not only is He the firstborn of the first creation, the one through whom all things were created, He's the firstborn of a new creation, the one through whom His church will be risen from the dead, the one through whom those who believe go from death to life, that He might be preeminent there as well. Martin Lloyd Jones uh, was a pastor in London in the mid 1900s. And when people would come see him for counseling, he would often ask them, are you a Christian? Are you part of this church? Are you one of these people that this passage is talking about? Are you a Christian? And he said he was always very worried when he'd get a response like, of course I'm a Christian. Why why would you ask such a question? You know, I'm I'm a good person. You know me, I come to church. Why why would you ask me such a question? He says that, that was always a very bad sign because someone who answers with that attitude is not presenting themselves as somebody who is what this passage describes Christians as, someone who once was alienated and hostile in mind and had done evil deeds. They think of being a Christian like, well, yeah, of course. Why, why wouldn't I be? I'm nice, you know. They're very, very worried about that. The, the attitude um, is better expressed. I heard another pastor say, you know, this isn't like the right answer or something, but it, it's an example of the kind of attitude that's more fitting given what we're reading about how reconciliation works, something more like, you know, I am a Christian, but what a joke. Me? I still can't believe it. You know, me? But yeah, matter of fact, I am a Christian. So, are you a Christian? Have you been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? The only qualifications you need to bring to be reconciled to God, are that you've been alienated from God, hostile in mind towards him, and have done evil deeds. And the good news is, so to speak, we've all already got that on our resume. So just admit it. Admit it and look to him as your Lord, and he will be that for you. You will find in him reconciliation. Because the payment's already been made. The debt's already been paid down. You don't have work to do in that department. There's simply the receiving of it and the looking at him and resting upon him as your Lord. That's what it means to say this part of the creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. It's not to merely appreciate Jesus. It's to look at him and say what Doubting Thomas said to him. My Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Jesus Christ. Now if you do so believe, and many of you have, you will find that he's not done with you. The fact is uh, these verses do not merely talk about the reconciliation of individuals to God or even of a people to God, though they do talk about that. Verse 20 broadens that and says that what God is doing is reconciling all things in Christ. So just as all things were created through Christ, all things will be reconciled through Christ thrones rulers dominions invisible visible all that stuff saying we'll be reconciled through him because because when humanity fell from God when we were separated from God through sin it wasn't just humans that began to disintegrate and die it was all of creation it, it's it's chaos it's you know the, the what is it the second law of thermodynamics the increase of entropy I really should know that I studied engineering but uh, I think it is so increase of chaos right Jesus is holding all things together but they're running away from him so to speak But the day is coming when everything will take its place again under the loving rule of Jesus Christ. Every facet of creation will be subject to his loving rule once again. Reconciliation with you as an individual is um, a necessary part of that. You can't get around that. You must be reconciled to God to enjoy and experience the reconciliation of all things. But it's just not the end of the story. He reconciles you, and then he reconciles a people, and he reconciles all things to himself. In fact, one way of thinking about the Christian life is once you are reconciled to God, God goes to work through you to reconcile all the other areas of your life back into his loving rule, to put them back under Jesus' feet. Every facet of your life, whether it be your... um, family, your relationships, your finances, your city, your gender, your sexuality, your ethnicity, your neighborhood, your workplace, every facet of your life, every sphere of influence in which God has placed you, God now works in you and you get to actually be used by him to see all these things brought back into their proper place under Jesus' loving rule. And you do that, you engage in that activity, not so that you'll be reconciled to God, not so that he'll love you, but because you've been reconciled to God, because he already loves you, because of what Jesus has done for you, because of the blood of his cross, which has reconciled you to the Father, through whom you now have peace, through faith in Christ, his only son. Let that get you out of bed in the morning. Get out of bed in the morning, go to work, parent, kids, whatever, because you need an identity, because you need meaning, and you need significance and security from those things. They'll eat you alive. But get out of bed in the morning because you've been reconciled to God and because now you're a part of his cosmic purpose to reconcile all things to himself because you just want to see Jesus be preeminent in your world. Get out of bed for that and you too will flourish under his loving rule. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, you are a God of love. You are love. You've been communicating yourself to your son for all of eternity. There was never a time when you were not generating and begetting his very being to have life in himself, Lord. And we confess we don't understand that, but we praise you for it. And now through him you have created all things, and we are a part of that creation, Lord, that ran from you, but by the blood of the cross of your son we have been brought near. And we have peace with you today. I ask, Father, that uh, for any in the room who are not yet reconciled to you, Lord, and maybe even have been in church for years, but have never actually been reconciled to you through faith, that you would do that in them today, that they would experience that peace that comes from the blood of Jesus' cross. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, as we enjoy that peace, we get to know you truly and fully We get to depend and rely on one who does actually satisfy, who does actually deliver on his promises. So deepen our confidence and our trust in you. May we worship you and appreciate the things you've given us, Lord, but never get them twisted. And we ask that you would work in and through us to bring more, to enjoy this reconciliation, more people, that our church would live as a reconciled community and experience that reconciliation with one another. And that every area of our lives would be brought back under Jesus' loving rule. Do this for the glory of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.